Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to start almost on time. Um, as usual, people come on time, not for time. Um, my name is Jan Klein Heisterkamp, uh, and it's my pleasure to welcome you at LSE tonight for our fourth LSE arbitration debate. Um, this is this arbitration debate has become the flagship of our um, transnational law project, which some of you may know. And uh, arbitration has always played a center role for transnational law and therefore also for our project. And therefore we are delighted that uh, we are now really instituting a custom of having an LSE arbitration debate. So this is our fourth debate. Um, let me very quickly introduce the speakers to you as if it were necessary, but some of the younger people might not know everyone. Um, the first, the moderator, Toby Landau. And uh, actually, I will stop right there and just quote from an email which I, which I received from uh, John Beachy in reply to my invitation for tonight. And he wrote, Many apologies and my warm warmest regards to you, the debating partners and the moderator. You have pulled off a small miracle by pinning down the elusive Mr. Landau to an appearance. <laughs> he is busy, and there's a reason for that. Um, we're delighted to have Toby back at LSE. And um, I shall almost not introduce Jan Paulson to you. Um, as you know, Jan Paulson is um, a visiting professor at LSE. He has... Um, recently retired from Freshfields as the head of international law and international arbitration, and we are very much looking forward to the launch of his book, The Idea of Arbitration, which will hopefully appear quite soon at the end of this year. And then we are, of course, honored and delighted to welcome our special guest, Sundaresh Menon, the Chief Justice of Singapore. Um, Mr. Menon graduated first-class honors from the National University of Singapore, obtained his master's in law from Harvard, and as a member of the Singapore and New York Bar, has been a partner in prestigious law firms in, in Singapore before being called to the judiciary in 2006 as a judicial commissioner, then 2010 as the Attorney General of Singapore, and since last year, Judge of Appeal, and quite quickly after that, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Singapore. Of course, Sundaresh Menon is also a great figure of international arbitration. And it was actually his very candid and sharp keynote address of last year's ICA in Singapore, which has stirred up things in the international arbitration community and has given rise to also tonight's event. And this fits very well in with our moderators Similar role with his Freshfield selection in 2011 when he asked, how do we save investment arbitration from itself? You see that there are critical questions to be asked. Now, LSE has a worldwide reputation for, as a place not for cheerleading, but rather for critical analysis and to look critically also at criticism and hence tonight's debate. When walking through the main entrance, you might have seen the coat of arms of LSE on which is written, Rerum Cognoscere Causas, to understand the real origin of things. And this is the spirit in which we conduct our research. We try to push our excellent students and also influence practice. So tonight's arbitration debate on is self-regulation of international arbitration an illusion is perfectly in that spirit. 
and I hope you all enjoy the debate. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Jan. Um, my, my role as moderator uh, is, um, is of no significance, really. I'm here just as traffic warden. And uh, I, all I'm going to do is to set the scene for the debaters uh, to begin with their presentations. Very briefly, the genesis of this current debate. Uh, the genesis was Sundaresh's 2012 ICA keynote address in Singapore, which proved to be a galvanizing moment uh, in the world, the curious world of international arbitration. It has framed and focused a debate that has continued ever since. Sundaresh began by talking of the rise of the golden age of arbitration. But just as the audience in Singapore were about to settle back into their comfortable velour conference seats, ready for a period of self-glorification, self-satisfaction and mutual congratulation, <coughs> the address actually turned 180 degrees. It wasn't so much a celebration of arbitration as a moment of deep reflection and indeed the identification of critical weaknesses uh, in the process, an expression of some alarm about current practices, fundamental issues of legitimacy focused upon institutions, arbitrators, and counsel, and questions as to the sustainability of our curious practice in the future. And where Sundaresh ended was a call for some form of greater regulation of the process. So the key questions that have focused arbitral minds in the months since that address have been, firstly, is there a problem? Is there some kind of systemic failure on the part of institutions, arbitrators, counsel to maintain minimum standards in terms of ethics and conduct? Is the problem actual or is it just perceived? Is there a breakdown in trust in the process uh, or issues of a lack of transparency? And if so, then what do we do about it? What form of regulation or intervention might be appropriate? What are the instruments that we might look for? Are we looking for changes in laws to allow more scrutiny? Are we looking for changes to institutional rules? Do we want more A6 booklets on our arbitral bookshelves? Do we want eBay, Amazon-style feedback forums for users with customer satisfaction ratings? Do we want universal coverage or do we want local regulation? And in particular, the question that's going to focus us this evening is whether the international arbitral community is actually capable of establishing convincing mechanisms themselves for self-regulation. And if I can put it completely neutrally, is there a danger of over-complexity and rigidity and curing the disease, but rather killing the patient in the meantime? That is uh, the issue to be debated, and we're going to structure the debate in the following format. There will be 15 minutes uh, per speaker, first of all, by way of general opening of the case for and against regulation and intervention. Thereafter, there will be three separate topics addressed. Firstly, institutions. Secondly, arbitrators. And thirdly, counsel. And uh, we will have um, some limited time uh, in, after each of those segments 
for short and concise and relevant and punchy interventions from the floor. Uh, The rules are not much more than that. We've agreed that there will be no physical contact between the speakers. Uh, And otherwise, with that, I'm going to ask Sundaresh to begin. Thank you, Toby. The subject of our debate this evening is framed as something of a leading question since it presupposes that there is a case for regulation or intervention, the scope of the debate being over the precise form this should take. I think I'm in good company in saying that indeed there's virtually no meaningful regulatory framework to govern international arbitration and that this is untenable for a variety of reasons. I can point to works of Johnny Vida, Doak Bishop, Catherine Rogers, and indeed my friend Jan Paulson, among others, who have spoken to one or another aspect of this broad proposition. But there is an equally respectable body of opinion on the other side who contend that arbitration is as successful as it is precisely because it has largely avoided being regulated and that the genius of the community of practitioners should be left to drive it to even greater heights. So I'll take a few minutes first to sketch out my case for saying that there is an urgent, even a vital need for steps to be taken to address the need for a regulatory framework. In some respects, it seems odd to speak of trying to fix a problem in arbitration at a time of unprecedented growth and success. As the saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So the starting point must be, is it broke? Is it the case that there is truly nothing inherently wrong with arbitration that warrants any sort of action being taken? Or, in fact, are there things wrong, but perhaps only latently so, such that it is but a matter of time before the problems become patent and even acutely so? My thesis is that it's very much a case of the latter. Arbitration developed as an alternative to the traditional methods for the resolution of disputes, But there have been significant and dramatic changes in the environment in which arbitration operates, and this raises new challenges. It is vital that this be recognized and acted upon. I make good this proposition of a dramatic change in the operating environment with two basic points that will demonstrate the need for a common, considered response to the challenges that are posed. First, the dramatic growth of new entrants. This means the existing framework such as it is, which evolved in a different setting for a different type of industry, is no longer adequate. Let me break this down into three further steps. First, that there is a very significant growth in the number of new entrants coming into the industry and that this can be expected to grow ever more dramatically. This seems self-evident in some respects, but let me give some quick highlights. New arbitration centers are opening all over the world and in locations with limited history or background in arbitration. Many of these are in Asia, the Middle East, and soon increasingly in Africa. These are trends that mirror the global trade flows. At the same time, in keeping with one of the basic norms of international arbitration, many jurisdictions have lifted restrictions on who may appear in international arbitration, whether as counsel or as arbitrator. Arbitration is seen as big and lucrative business and perhaps as an area of legal practice with some of the brightest prospects. 
It will draw many who dream of having the whole world as the field in which to ply their craft. It is law without borders, albeit without the same positive connotations that accompany the use of the corresponding moniker by our medical colleagues. Second, why should this be a problem for the existing framework? In its original conception, arbitration was a commercial alternative to traditional litigation. It did not have to contend with the hurly-burly of modern international commerce. Today, courts are seen as the primary purveyor for dis domestic disputes, while arbitration is the primary provider instead of the alternative for cross-border commercial disputes. In the old world, arbitration practitioners shared an implied or a tacit understanding of what constituted acceptable conduct and held themselves to self-prescribed standards without the need for express rules or even the intervention of courts or tribunals. Catherine Rogers notes that in this setting, the lack of a formal set of rules of conduct did not pose a problem because everybody knew what the expected norms were. Challenges against arbitrators were practically unheard of, not because there were no rules, but rather because of this shared value system. And herein lies the crux of the problem. Implied understandings or shared values do not provide any meaningful means of shaping or influencing conduct once we have morphed from a small, largely homogenous group to a very large, very heterogeneous group bringing a myriad of backgrounds, influences, and perspectives of what constitutes acceptable conduct. There is a separate issue of those who come to arbitration, not always thinking of it in terms of a cherished system that has an important, even essential role to play in promoting the international rule of law, but rather as the new Eldorado. This too can have significant effects on the behavior of counsel as well as arbitrators. In a small community, one can easily tell who the good ones are. In a large pool, arbitrators start to think in terms of business and practice development so as to get noticed. In short, arbitrators no longer regard themselves as bound by peer standards across the world because amidst the present diversity, there can be no peers in the true sense. Thirdly, leaving aside problems caused by cynical motives, in a globalized industry without unified standards, cultural differences pose serious difficulties. Let me illustrate this with just one example at this stage. Ex parte communications with arbitrators are not seen as objectionable in some places, such as China, where the arbitrator may also act as a mediator. <coughs> I have personally been involved in a case in another Asian jurisdiction involving my European contractor client, and the government authority responsible for the large energy project which my client had been engaged to construct. Midway through the arbitration, the tribunal called a timeout and proceeded to speak ex parte to the government entity's lawyers, and as I later discovered, advised them to settle the claim because they were likely to lose. The advice was taken and the matter was resolved, but I confess at the time I was feeling utter despair and already formulating a challenge strategy. How do we address the different perspectives that counsel and arbitrators will bring to these issues without a unified methodological framework that ensures that the battles are fought on a level field? 
My second basic point is that we're facing altogether new types of issues that raise new types of difficulties and challenges that the industry needs to respond to with considered responses. Again, let me give you two examples. The first, third-party funding of arbitration. What is it that sets third-party funding in international arbitration apart from its incidence in domestic litigation? Third-party funding in international arbitration is rapidly growing. According to literature reviewed in preparing for this debate, the largest U.S. funder who specializes in funding investment arbitration claims commits an average of $8 million to each case. It is evidently a good business model if one looks at the rate at which its profits have grown. In international arbitration, the use of third-party funding is virtually unregulated. This is in contrast with its use where this is permitted in the domestic litigation setting. In Australia, for example, the federal government enacted the Corporation's Amendment Regulations No. 6, 2012, which impose safeguards. These include requirements that litigation funders put in place arrangements to manage conflicts of interests. Time doesn't permit me this evening to develop a further point beyond identifying it. International arbitration features the unique situation of counsel and arbitrators being drawn from essentially the same pool and even exchanging places sometimes from case to case. This can give rise to acute difficulties where a litigation funder is funding separate cases that come across a given practitioner in his capacity as arbitrator in one case and as counsel in another. There are other issues with, with third-party funding in the context of international arbitration. Funders are in this purely for the business returns, yet they can have so much influence over the proceedings as to become de facto the party that selects and appoints the claimant's arbitrator. To what extent are contexts of this nature disclosable? The need for common and coordinated responses to these issues seem plain to me. A second example of a problem that has come to the fore in the prevailing environment of international arbitration is that of council qualifications. A few days ago, I received a note from Melanie Willems, a partner with an international law firm, touching on this. The particular point is this. In international arbitration, there are no qualifying criteria over who can appear as counsel or arbitrator. In most significant jurisdictions, there are no bar admission requirements to be met. In fact, to the contrary, there is a sense of normalcy created by the typical setting of a lawyer from, say, Singapore, appearing in an arbitration in London governed by, say, Swiss law. And there is no legal requirement that the counsel concerned must get Swiss counsel's input or advice in such a case. Do we tolerate this as a matter to be left to the client who exercises his free choice? Clients may lack information. They may be depending on a relationship with a law firm which might well be generally co competent but thinks wrongly as it happens that local advice is unnecessary. Do we then depend on the right of the client to sue the law firm as a sufficient protector of the interest involved? What about the public interest in ensuring that those who seek legal assistance are getting that which complies at least with minimum standards? So to summarize, I would suggest arbitration is a globalized industry. It is no longer wise or possible to depend on the old idea of a shared value system to ensure appropriate standards of conduct because there can no longer be said to be such a shared value system, and equally because there is no longer the sort of proximity which is necessary to ensure that practitioners are sensitive to peer reviews and pressure. 
There are legitimate concerns over the degree to which the conduct of practitioners is shaped by excessive financial interest. Aside from this, there is a real problem with difficulties and differences in perspectives and culture. And finally, we are facing new types of issues for which considered and coordinated responses are called for. Before leaving this, let me touch on three frequently raised objections to regulation. First, the argument from party autonomy. It is said that parties have a fundamental right to play a direct role in the design of the arbitration, including, most importantly, the right to select the arbitrators and counsel. Parties, after all, are best placed to know what skills or qualifications are required to resolve their disputes. Party autonomy, although a paramount pillar of international commercial arbitration, cannot be said to be an absolute principle. There are some immutable norms which parties cannot contract out of. As an example, the model law and the New York Convention provide for specific concessions to public policy or even as to arbitrability. I suggest the argument of party autonomy does not prescribe insuperable normative objections against improving on the existing practices. Indeed, there are flexible options for consideration that are entirely consistent with fundamental precepts of party autonomy. And let me give two deliberately simplified examples just to illustrate the point. First, in relation to the way arbitrators are appointed, parties could, in a manner consistent with party autonomy, indicate that a chosen institute must select all the arbitrators from a list provided by the parties. Or, in relation to the regulation of council conduct, the rules of an institute could incorporate basic norms expected of counsel participating in an arbitration conducted under the auspices of that institute and allow the tribunal the power to exclude counsel who breach those rules. This I'm given to understand is presently under active consideration by the LCIA and is likely to be passed. The key, I suggest, is not to close our minds off to the consideration of solutions provided we first recognize the problem and with it the need for a solution. Next, the argument from over-regulation, what has been ref referred to as legislative, a health warning against the urge to legislate more and more rules in the endeavor to solve problems. Advocates of this school call for a collective pause for thought before making more rules. And in what is now a famous warning, we are urged not to kill the patient in trying to cure the disease. I agree that we must think very carefully about what the problems are and what the proper solutions ought to be. But the famous warning appears to focus on the medicine prescribed to assess whether the diagnosis is correct. I suggest a difference must be drawn between whether there is a need for treatment on the one hand and determining what that treatment should be on the other. It might be unhelpful and conducive to error if we were to conflate the two questions. The question of how much regulation is required is an important question, but it is a secondary question. We must first identify the problem and reach a common understanding of its precise nature and potential ill consequences before we turn to the secondary question of what treatment is called for. Thirdly, the argument from diversity. This asserts that regulation is impossible because of the multitude of ethical obligations that different counsel may be bound by, given their diverse legal backgrounds and traditions. I suggest that it is precisely because of such a diversity 
that we need to think of how best to deal with these differences. This is brought to the fore in the example I've given on ex parte communications with arbitrators, which I've already mentioned, and other examples that I will come to shortly. I suggest there is a need to construct a framework to resolve ethical issues arising from diverse legal traditions. Such a framework would recognize legitimate differences in legal cultures while developing a uniform structure to guide parties to resolve them. It is unhelpful to say this is an impossible dream because how else did the model law emerge or the New York Convention as a universal code for balancing the competing interests that affect the transnational enforcement of arbitration awards? Will it be easy? No. Will it take time? Yes. Is it essential? I suggest absolutely. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The last time I had the occasion to hear Chief Justice Menon speak, he addressed an audience of a thousand lawyers, specialists in international arbitration, and proceeded to send an icy chill down their collective spine. It was a lengthy address, almost a full hour, full of elegance, erudition, and edginess. It was an uncomfortable thing to listen to. But that was a different Menon. This evening, uh, we... Well, then he was in law enforcement. <laughs> Attorney General of Singapore, and this evening we uh, hear somebody uh, in the raiments of a metaphorical judicial robe, uh, sounding conciliatory, accommodating, um, almost avuncular. Um, missing some of those icy chills. Uh, where were the uber-sophisticated ambulance chasers who infest the world of international arbitration? That was one of those uncomfortable remarks back then. Uh, I will this evening defend the status quo. That is my role this evening. Should I explain that? I, I don't think I will. It is my role to defend the status quo. I wish to take two things off the table straight away and then make two points, and that will be my opening salvo. The two things that I think we can take off the table seemed, um, seem to be uh, things that we agree with, I believe, by now. Uh, people who have experience of international arbitration. Um, I wasn't there, but I've read Chief Justice Menon's remarks at uh, Queen Mary's last year, where he accepted that although in arbitration there was a notion that justice is blind, there was also the reality that many, if they can get away with it, seek to game the system and try to get away with whatever they can. And that needs some policing. Let's take that off the table. We all agree. Secondly, party autonomy is not absolute. It cannot be an answer that parties have freedom to do whatever they like, because people don't have freedom to do whatever they like if it harms social interests. Um, 
professional boxing is um, legal in a lot of countries, but hasn't always been legal in all of them. Um, and one thing which is legal nowhere, I think, is combat to the death, which some bloodthirsty punters would love to see and pay a lot of money for. And some people undoubtedly, desperate people eager to take that risk and to earn some money for their destitute families would be happy to sign up, but we don't allow it. Less dramatically, we don't allow that parties agree that arbitrators can be uh, unethical or dismissive of due process because we have a stake in the perception of the legitimacy of a social institution which is important internationally, important in that it reduces the costs of international economic transactions in lowering the premium <coughs> for legal risk in giving greater hopes on the reliability of contracts. It's important, and therefore party economy, autonomy is not an answer to the problems we're talking about tonight. So my two substantive remarks then to launch the debate. Uh, the first one is on the theme of uh, the cure being worse than the perceived uh, ailment of international arbitration. Consider the temptations of reactions to regulations as soon as they appear. National legal systems are more or less sophisticated and more or less inclined sometimes to yield to, to temptations and to fashions that appear. Let me give you an example. There is a current problem in one uh, uh, important venue for international arbitration, which is Dubai. Uh, there are presently pending no less than nine cases in Dubai where arbitrators are being sued, and in some of these cases, the institution itself is being sued. And this is in an environment where the regulations are plain vanilla, nothing special, nothing of the things uh, that are being advocated by my opponent this evening. And yet you find, it seems to be the flavor of the season, uh, parties that are disappointed with anything that happens in the arbitration, suing the arbitrators. Um, the uh, Dubai International Arbitration Center is a very successful one with a caseload uh, which compares to that of the LCIA. Uh, and many uh, familiar names in international arbitration are sitting in these cases. And among the nine uh, cases I have mentioned, you have quite a few of them who are being sued before the courts of Dubai. For example, the arbitrators have decided that they have jurisdiction. A complaint is made, even though the rules say jurisdiction to decide their own jurisdiction. Um, a complaint is made to uh, the arbitral institution that there has been an excess of power. That is turned down, as you would expect, and everybody is sued, the arbitrators and the center, because the center has not overruled the arbitrators. Um, the next thing that happens is that the arbitrators are asked to resign because they have a conflict of interest with the parties, because they are being sued. <laughs> that is raised before the institution, whose executive uh, committee, as you might imagine, rejects that challenge, whereupon the executive committee is sued uh, as well. And then, finally, the arbitrators are sued because they had the nerve not to appear 
in the first case. So out of one single uh, decision which isn't liked, you have, uh, you have this kind of uh, difficulty. Uh, in another case, uh, the arbitrators decided, uh, a question arose as to, the, as to whether the arbitrators were out of time, statutory time limits for concluding the arbitration. Uh, the arbitrators uh, turned to the institution, which extends deadlines if it's necessary. And the institution confirmed that the deadline had been extended in accordance with the rules. Parties didn't agree with that um, and sued the arbitrators for have, not having disregarded the finding of the institution and suing the institution for having made a wrong decision. Um, not among the nine cases are those where arbitrators have resigned uh, on receiving letters saying, we want you to know that we're very sincere in the complaints we have made and we don't wish to trouble you personally by having you um, cited before the courts of Dubai and thereupon some arbitrators have chosen to resign. Um, this is not a condemnation of arbitration in Dubai because we don't yet know. This, I'm talking about the flavor of the season. We don't yet know what the Dubai courts will do with this raft of cases. And I hope that they will do the right thing in the interest of a burgeoning arbitral institution. But this shows you the kind of thing that happens with plain vanilla regulations, things that we don't expect to happen. Uh, the idea of regulating more universal codes have some weaknesses which uh, have been identified broadly. Um, one problem is that they might be bland. Toby Landau spoke at Singapore, for those of you who were there, uh, with uh, some punchiness about the hopelessness of open textured rules with which everyone agrees, but when applied to any given factual circumstance can go either way. And so could the courts of a place that wish to go either way, or one way in particular, would be able to manipulate open textured rules. The next hypothesis is that they are not um, rules on which everyone agrees, but good rules that are prospective, um, ro robust rules. Now, the question there is whether they might be too robust to be tolerated uh, by legal systems which say, well, this is news to us. This is not our idea of the fundamental requirements of due process and would therefore simply overrule uh, those regulations as contrary to uh, public policy. And, and therein uh, perhaps lies a danger of overreaching in self-regulation and turning it into something which is a peril for the process. Um, even if neither of these hypotheses applies, uh, it is quite imaginable that whatever the rules say, no matter how carefully they balance between these two extremes, there will be a temptation for courts to say, well, now that we have these more prolix codes, we have more standards by which we can judge whether or not the arbitration is conducted in accordance with the agreement of the parties, failing which there has been an excess of power which we will control, leading to more controversy. And the more you say these rules must be strictly robustly enforced by the institution, the more it might be said, ultimately, who polices the institution. Now, just to give a bit of more concrete flavor to this, uh, what are the types of things that uh, Sundaresh Menon considers might be done? He has proposed, I'll give you two, uh, 
two ways of leveling the playing field. First, by redressing the information imbalance, and second, by better policing of the rules. Let's take this first. He said, for example, given the possibility and the dangers of asymmetries of information that distress parties in arbitration, where one or maybe both feel that they're disadvantaged and, and are treated like outsiders because they don't understand what is happening. Um, to deal with these asymmetries of information, there should be more compulsory information about arbitrators. So their history of awards, their CVs, their numbers of appointments, how many they take up in a given year, the state of their calendar, fine. and the arbitrator's voting patterns, which should also be displayed. I am now quoting from the St. Mary lecture, so that parties can see how many times an arbitrator has voted in favor of the party who appointed him. My goodness, such raw data is worse than useless. It is mischievous. Think of three hypotheses. Um, in one case, an arbitrator has a particular view which is well known. I'll take a ridiculous example. We have a Swiss arbitrator who, for some reason, uh, has the idea that under Swiss law, um, there is no need to mitigate damages. Happens to be his opinion. It's an unusual one. And from time to time, parties have a case in which it would be really handy if there were no such duty. And so they appoint this uh, arbitrator. Uh, that's his sincerely held view that arbitrator might time and again dissent because he holds to this view quite firmly and very few other Swiss arbitrators do. Perhaps there might be some case where the factual pattern comes close to the line and perhaps that arbitrator might convince somebody else so that there is a, major uh, there is a majority award uh, that way and uh, the arbitrator continues to be named. Nothing would be surprising about that arbitrator, a perfectly fine fellow, uh, having a great record of voting in favor of the party that named him precisely because they know uh, what his positions might be. Second hypothesis, uh, arbitrators who are absolute hired guns. Okay, I don't need to dwell on that. My point is there is no way of telling the difference by this statistic, by this raw statistics. Nor is there any way of telling the difference with the third category, which are errant hypocrites who are trying to game the strategy of the arbitrator, wishing to be appointed as many times as possible. Um, no way. Uh, now, who is going to collate and disseminate this information? Uh, the suggestion uh, by Sundaresh is that this must be the institution. Uh, he has noted that surveys indicate I'm not, no one will be surprised. Surveys indicate that parties are interested in knowing um, the skills, experience, and track record of arbitrators. And parties say, why isn't there a joint publication by all arbitral institutions in the world to be published, including the biographies of arbitrators and a public rating system? Uh, I'd like that too, but uh, please show me one I believe in before I will assent to it. In the United States, there are some specialist areas of arbitration. Uh, many of you know, 
uh, employment arbitrations in the United States are typically resolved by arbitration, whereas in many other countries uh, uh, that is forbidden. It's not arbitrable. But in the United States, that is standard. There are tens of thousands of labor arbitrations every year. There are arbitrators who are specialists in this area and because the cases usually last no more than about a day or two at the maximum, they, to earn a living, they need to have quite a number of appointments. And track records are kept. Uh, these arbitrations usually are conducted under collective bargaining agreements so that there's management on one side and not the individual on the other side, the union on the other side. And they keep track of how the arbitrator comes down. Pro-management, pro-employee. And if an arbitrator has come down one way too often, well, you see the problem. Um, it's the difficulty. So before this, here's an issue. We can agree, wouldn't it be nice if we had this, that, or the other thing? But has anyone proposed a convincing system of achieving this? Rating systems then also finally raise the problem of the sincerity of the information given by the parties. It will have occurred to you already before this evening that if you ask parties what they thought of an arbitrator, you, you actually want to know um, whether, they, whether they lost the case. Um, but above that, if a survey goes out from an institution to a user, a frequent user of arbitration, who is very, very happy with an arbitrator, they might actually be reluctant to go too far in saying, we really like that arbitrator. <laughs> Terrific job. We'd like to see him appointed many more times, particularly in our cases. The institution might have a memory of that and perhaps be reluctant the next time. I think the parties want, uh, rationally, when that day comes when they're asked, to be a little bit cooler about that type of appraisal. Others will be very enthusiastic. How do you know who responded in compiling these statistics? The second uh, substantive point I wanted to make is that I think we should perhaps um, agree that what we're talking about uh, this evening is the regulation of ordinary commercial arbitration in the international sphere, B2B arbitrations. There are other kinds of arbitrations. There are SS arbitrations and BS arbitrations. I'm not trying to be rude. There are state-to-state -state arbitrations, uh, and there are business-to-state arbitrations, the largest subcategory being investment arbitrations. And in those cases, uh, I think it may be wise not to mix these combinations for, the pre for present purposes. And take account of the fact that in the, in the public international field, most disputes have political dimensions. Um, the niceties of due process may be, to some extent, illusory in a nervous world divided by ideology and geopolitical motives. Um, the issues that bedevil the law of nations are never far from such anxiety, whether they are inherently political, like matters of self-determination, or inherently flexible, like equitable adjustments of maritime delimitation. Powerful states may fear that they are unpopular and that adjudicators from jealous, weaker, but more numerous nations will gang up on them. Small states may fear that their own influence is nil, and that they are far able to resist unfair judgments than, say, the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. 
In short, the politics of adjudication under public international law may make it unlikely that disputing states will accept a lot of regulation. Not to put too fine a point uh, on it, states are inherently less law-abiding than private parties. Private parties can invoke no causes belly. They must look to the law and negotiation. Given that disparity, it's perhaps too much to expect states to believe in the possibility of fully neutral arbitration in all elements of the process. Business-to-state arbitrations may be, to some extent, influenced by those considerations. But there seems to be no reason whatsoever why such incredulousness must also prevail in the commercial field. Parties enter into contracts with the objective of relying on them. Contracts. That also uh, goes for their arbitration agreement and the notion that they mean what they say and the rules to which they refer should be applied in the way they have written have been written, a fair process with unbiased institutions and unbiased decision-makers. Ex ante, this can only be understood as a shared view, and that I propose to be the premise of our, uh, the remainder of our debate this evening. Thank you. Thank, thank, you, uh, thank you very much. So you have the, uh, the landscape set out. Uh, the difference between identifying the disease and shaping the cure and the introduction of a new revolutionary, perhaps, concept of BS arbitration. (laughs) And with that, we are now getting into the detail because it may be that both uh, aspects in terms of identifying the disease and shaping the cure uh, can only make sense when one looks at the particular context and the particular issue. And so with that, we turn first of all to the topic of institutions, and uh, the speakers have set themselves the impossible task of encapsulating everything that needs to be said on each uh, issue in seven minutes. And so, Jan, we'll start. Not counting time to walk to the podium. Institutions. Actually, I will borrow some time from the next two segments to say a few more things about institutions because that's not often, as often talked about as standards for behavior of uh, arbitrators and counsel. And so you might say I have a short attention span and I'm a bit tired of talking about those things and this seems to be a new subject, but I sincerely believe that the institutions are the thing with which it all begins and cannot be solved without focusing on the institutions. Uh, And I have a feeling that this is going to be an enduring subject for the next generation of international arbitration. Counsel and arbitrators have selfish reasons to obey the leadership and the moral leadership that institutions set for them. So, seeing that, that arbitrators and counsel are, can be made to obey, is it possible for us to regulate for a nation of devils? I'm channeling Immanuel Kant, who said that no legal system can be devised unless it would also work for a nation of devils. Well, can we do this? We, can, we must if we can. The ICC used to be the dominant institution in the world. There are now more entrants who have achieved critical mass and significant credibility 
and yet other new entrants in far greater numbers who haven't achieved all that much, but might because of their inexperience and lack of resources, uh, uh, pollute the environment with doubts about their ability to uh, conduct themselves in an appropriate way. And that creates problems for even the ICC, uh, which risks being tarred by the same brush. Um, Have I switched sides? No. Um, I'm talking about the status quo. The status quo is dynamic. I hope that some of you will appreciate that rhetorical device. I can win this debate even if I lose it. Uh, But (laughs) there never was stasis in the way that arbitral institutions run things. There was always a way of reacting to new practices, to new difficulties, to new controversies, to new tactics that came up in the field of arbitration. So to deal with them and to adjust existing rules is not something, of, is not a sea change and is not nothing new. It's a question of degree. So I am, I would not defend a status quo which does not encompass an element of adjustment. If we adopt sea changes without very prudent reflection, my concern is that international arbitration will fatally become an adjunct of national legal systems. Okay in some cases and quite disastrous in others. a contradiction in terms. International arbitration ultimately subject to national policing, uh, a recipe for failure. Given the, that the success of international arbitration is so directly correlated to the absence of an international judicial system, isn't it striking, ladies and gentlemen, that the arbitral process has not developed a unified institutional structure either. This point was not lost to the pioneers of international arbitration. In 1961, at the first Congress of what would in due course become the International Council for Commercial Arbitration, the second and third topics, let me read the titles, were the following. The Harmonization of Procedural Rules of Arbitral Institutions, 1961. And the second one, the creation of an international agency empowered to, an international agency, empowered to appoint arbitrators, established arbitral procedures, and registered awards in order to facilitate their execution. In the course of the ensuing decades, it is fair to say that institutions having international ambitions have cooperated extensively and learned much from each other's experience. Indeed, they've created something called the International Federation of Commercial Arbitration Institutions for just this purpose. Um, A useful convergence of practices may unquestionably be observed with respect to arbitral procedure. But uh, the same cannot be said with respect to sensitive functions of transparency regarding the appointing, remunerating, and where necessary, removing arbitrators. One approach to the problem might have been the creation of a universal institution, 
The late Hans Schmidt, who was then director of the Parker School of Foreign and Comparative Law at Columbia University, specifically focused on concerns about the selection of arbitrators, and he made a proposal in the form of an article with a self-explanatory title, The Future of International Commercial Arbitration, A Single Transnational Institution. He called for a single global institution that would have uniformly improved processes and faculties available anywhere in the world. Existing institutions would be merged, existing institutions would be merged into branches, and if they declined to merge into branches, Smith urged the International Chamber of Commerce to take the initiative alone. Now, whether this proposal was ever feasible or desirable is a matter for conjecture. We can observe that it was a road not taken. The objections include cost, bureaucratization, and I suppose monopolistic complacency. At this stage, the existence of too many other successful institutions make it implausible to imagine that the ICC would even attempt to assert hegemony. The future clearly lies in the emergence of fundamental best practices by which a variety of institutions, while preserving their identities and specific incidental features, which certain users find attractive, may establish a baseline of acceptable practices. That's the dynamic status quo. Institutional design for the very controversial matters, which are not arbitral procedure. Anybody could start an arbitral institution tomorrow and come up with excellent rules simply by copying existing rules, which have been tried and have evolved over generations. But the difficulty is the controversial decisions, appointing, remunerating, removing, policing arbitral performance, and perhaps the performance of counsel. But this is not particular to the arbitral process. Citizens wonder about their courts. What is the human reality, they wonder, behind the visual props of the judiciary? Majestic columns, high benches, august robes. Who chooses the judges? On what basis? How are they motivated? Are they the agents, are they the agents of an all-powerful executive? Are they chosen by popular vote? and engage in political campaigns? Do they have tenure and adequate income, or are they vulnerable to corruption and influence peddling? Given all these questions, one may well wonder in how many countries the citizenry has a comfortable and informed sense of judicial legitimacy before we start worrying about arbitral legitimacy. International tribunals, having no jurisdiction, save that bestowed upon them by consent, are more vulnerable to rejection by the very parties whose dispute they, are, they were uh, designated to judge because they are in a position, the designating parties, as the saying goes, to vote with their feet. Now, it's difficult to establish, nurture, and maintain permanent organizations able to supervise the arbitral process in a manner perceived by an ever more critical world to be legitimate. What they purport to provide is not bricks and mortar and symbols, but patterns of practices that make it acceptable for them to serve as custodians of a process which leads to the binding and accepted resolution of disputes. This, of course, is not achieved quickly uh, or easily, especially when set against the constant clamor for less costly procedures and the resourcefulness of arbitrants whose conduct relentlessly add to those costs. Let me mention, 
without going into them in any detail at all, three areas where the message is already fully received. No need for a wake-up call. And this will be dealt with by what I call the the dynamic status quo. Transparency. Institutions understand this. Parties will not accept ignorance of who calls the tunes. And that needs to be dealt with. Transparency within the institutions also has to do with whom they appoint. And here, quite small steps may yield helpful results. And you have seen this emerging already from the more experienced institutions. Prospective arbitrators' dockets of pending cases, no longer controversial. And their reserve dates should not be secret. The ICC now routinely demands this information of nominees. Nor, in my view, should it be outlandish to ask arbitrators to record in all of their cases and reveal data from their past about the number of days that have passed in every case from the last word spoken or written by the parties and the delivery of their award. The, ability of, the availability of such, such objective information would not only enable parties to make informed choices, but also to create healthy incentive for the arbitrators. Two, engagement with the community of users, obvious and requiring very little uh, uh, comment. One of the concerns of Chief Justice Menon's critical analysis of the process uh, is the absence or the asymmetry of information. Now, to some extent, this is alleviated by the emergence of uh, an international bar of advocates who are well acquainted with eminent arbitrators, but that is not an adequate answer for a system intended to work with routine cases as well with an even playing field for newcomers. Now, here's an example. The, en- the Employment Due Process Protocol, published by the American Arbitration Association, which sets forth a series of criteria to be met before the AAA will agree to administer cases. You can agree to the AAA all you want, but unless you also agree to this protocol, the AAA will not administer the cases in certain Uh, uh, disciplines of arbitration which are subject to different protocols. So this one for employment due process contains a recommendation for the time being, I quote, that the parties should be provided with a name, listen to this, should be provided with the names, addresses and telephone numbers of the representatives of the parties in the prospective arbitrator's six most recent cases to aid them in selection. While that requirement may be valuable, recommendation requirement, call you what it may, may be valuable in the course of arbitrants' due diligence, institutions as well as arbitrators also need to provide more meaningful information without prompting. Finally, the third point, barriers to entrenchment and conflict of interest. Parties are not comforted by the thought that arbitral institutions might have a very small group of people year after year, decade after decade, controlling the appointment process of arbitrators. Why shouldn't they know how it works?
these messages, as I've said, are already received, and they don't require a sea change. The leaders of international arbitration, the leadership in the institutions, are already doing this, should be encouraged to do it. That is a debate well worth having, but it is granular. It is not radical. Let me uh, preface my brief remarks on institutions with a couple of observations on possible models for regulation. Um, I think the first model for regulation that we need to at least consider before we dismiss it is external regulators. These would be courts, legislators, legislatures, and national bar associations. And I think the one point on which most of us, perhaps all of us, would agree on is this is not workable. And I say so for at least five reasons. First and foremost, the problem is transnational in nature, and the last thing we need is a fragmented response that cuts against the prize of harmonization that has been hard fought for and has been won to a significant degree over the last four decades. Second, domestic institutions may not sufficiently understand the unique circumstances of international arbitration. Third, in prescribing the norms, they might draw upon rules and norms from within domestic legal systems which are ill-suited to set standards to govern conduct in international arbitration. To return to the medicine analogy, it would be a case of prescribing medicine for the wrong disease. It might not cause much harm, but it won't help, and worse, might give the illusion that the problem is receiving attention. Fourth, in enforcing norms, local agencies might be influenced by local priorities, compounding the lack of uniformity in norms and standards of enforcement. And finally, the national court structure is ill-suited to carry out any frontline governance. Issues of misconduct are raised too late, usually at the enforcement or setting aside stage when the award will already have been rendered. So the real search must be directed at what I call internal regulation or a form of self-regulation, which is ethical regulation managed principally within the community, within the processes and institutions of international arbitration as opposed to by external authorities. The best examples of effective responses to other types of challenges faced by arbitration, and Jan has spoken of some of them, have come from the experiences and collective wisdom of its practitioners, even if this has sometimes been harnessed through an international body. I refer to the model law, the New York Convention, the IBA rules on disclosure applicable to arbitrators. Such collaborative efforts from within, or at least with the active involvement of the community, are likely to be the most responsive to the real needs of the community and throw up solutions that are most likely to be effective. They're also best placed to gain legitimacy and acceptance from within the community. The proposed revised version of the LCIA rules to which I have referred and which I warmly welcome is a promising example of this. It prescribes a core set of conduct norms for counsel and provides that the arbitral tribunal may exclude from the arbitration counsel found to be in serious or persistent violation of the guidelines. This will be an important first step for the international arbitration community to take ownership of its own governance structures within the profession. There is another model which, for want of a better term, I refer to as pure self-regulation, and which, which is perhaps closer to self-censorship. It leaves regulation in the sole hands of the practitioners themselves. For example, a firm might adopt a rule binding itself 
not to accept appointments from a particular type of entity, such as, for example, states in treaty arbitration, so as to avoid issue conflicts. While salutary and beneficial, this in and of itself is unlikely to be sufficient, as it rests principally on the practitioner's own ability and motivations to self-regulate. And put simply, these motivations and attitudes are not widely shared, a point I made in my opening remarks. But this is the model that might work best for institutions. I have not and do not call for the regulations of institutions. Institutions, in fact, I suggest, really can play a critical role in developing the governance of the profession of the industry as a whole. The real opportunity is the possibility for institutions to develop measures and mechanisms that can better regulate arbitrator conduct and standards, points I will develop in the latter two parts of the debate. And by playing a greater role in internal self-regulation of the industry as a whole, specifically because institutions are motivated, and they're motivated in an environment that is increasingly competitive to develop the best standards from within the community, and who better to provide these standards than the members of these institutions? So I don't think there is a great deal between us on the question of institutions. I actually think the institutions have a critical role to play in relation to developing enhanced standards of conduct. Now, um, we, uh, we have a slot for uh, any interventions from the floor, and I'm now looking for help because we have a bit of a problem. Uh, the problem we're faced with is uh, an emerging area of consensus between our two debaters, uh, which, uh, which is not, um, not what was planned. So at the moment, uh, we have from uh, different views, which are all pointing in terms of institutions, towards uh, letting institutions themselves uh, um, regulate themselves and allow for the emergence of standards rather than any affirmative regulatory activity by anybody else. Would anybody like to violently disagree? Todd. I wrote it down, so I'm going to go quickly for you. Chief Justice uh, Menon has alluded to the desirability of binding international bar rules. And I was thinking some economists argue that local bar rules have uh, more to do with erecting barriers to entry and oligopolizing uh, practice for the benefit of the existing and privileged practitioners rather than protecting the public interest by enhancing or ensuring quality. Uh, one could argue further that uh, barriers to entry appear endogenously in any field of endeavor. For example, lawyers who only speak Latin, uh, and as a result, that helps uh, create a barrier to entry. Uh, in other words, not unlike air, the propensity to regulate is all around us, and indeed, it's actually found within each and every one of us. So it seems to me that both speakers uh, agree on some kind of regulation. It's just that Chief Justice Menon focuses on the potential risk whereas Professor Paulson focuses on potential outcomes. And it sort of reminds me of the uh, uh, beef hormones case. We've got a precautionary principle person here, and we've got a cost-benefit science-based analysis person here. And I'm curious if uh, either of you would like to go a bit further and, and, and take more of a, a free market kind of uh, approach, this being a place where Hayek once was. Yeah. All right. So the consensus is spreading up here even further uh, at the moment. Uh, the invitation is not being taken at the moment. Would anybody else like to uh, like to uh, inject any controversy into the issue? And if not, then we will move on to what is probably uh, more troubled 
uh, more troubled areas. Uh, firstly, the issue of arbitrators. And Sundarish is going to begin. Arbitrators. A notable feature of arbitrator regulation is actually the growing number of challenges. These uh, come in part from the growing number of arbitrators, in part from the growing number of arbitrations, the growing number of counsel who participate in arbitration. Moreover, the notion of finality leaves losing or dissatisfied parties turning to whatever measures they can find to undo what has been done. I propose to start by briefly looking at some types of challenges for the lessons that they might provide. In Technomond, an award was annulled because of the arbitrator's failure to disclose commercial affiliations between the arbitrator's law firm and the claimant's corporate group. In ConocoPhillips and Venezuela, a renowned arbitrator ended up leaving his global law practice following allegations of bias when the practice merged with another law firm, which was acting for the claimant in other disputes. In Hrvatska against Slovenia, counsel who came into the case late and whose involvement was disclosed at a late stage was prohibited from participating in the arbitration when it was found that he came from the same chambers as one of the arbitrators. In a couple of other cases from the London Commercial Court, arbitrate, uh, ASM Shipping and B against A, the London Commercial Court uh, found that arbitrators should have recused in one case himself from the arbitration as he had made serious allegations against the principal witness in his capacity as counsel in, earlier, in an earlier separate dispute. And in another case, uh, on the grounds that he had given legal advice in a prior dispute to an agent of the respondent in the ongoing arbitration on issues which would come up in some way in the arbitration. And finally, in Vivendi against Argentina, the tribunal found that the arbitrator should have done due diligence conflicts checks before accepting a directorship of a major international bank which had significant shareholdings in the claimant to the arbitration. These cases raise a number of important points. Some of these challenges were undoubtedly well-founded, which begs the question of why the arbitrators concerned didn't see this. Is there a lesson here? Is there danger here about the excessive commercialization of arbitration? Secondly, these challenges arose out of circumstances that arguably fell outside known and accepted common standards or guidelines. While there are some standards in place, if we don't address the task of laying down standards from within the community, this is what is likely to happen. Standards will be laid down by adjudicative bodies and a common law of sorts will develop over a period of time. But this is likely to be a long time coming and even then it is likely to be divergent and fragmented. Is this suitable to meet the needs of the modern arbitration environment? Third, many of these issues raise questions of policy for which the community is best placed to weigh in on, rather than leaving it to a disparate group of courts to provide the answers. I wonder how the English courts might have responded if the same facts in Hravatska had arisen there, or to an arbitrator who might have had ex parte communications with a party in an unsuccessful attempt to settle the dispute, quite likely different to how that might have been received in another jurisdiction. Fourth, the more the courts get involved in this, the more it is likely to dilute the pro-arbitration, non-intervention stance that the community has fought so hard for over the last several decades. Fifth, the lack of standards for counsel and arbitrators will produce increasingly difficult questions. To take an example, the practice of pre-appointment arbitrator interviews. What is its purpose? What does it mean when a party defends this as part of its due diligence to establish that it is comfortable with its intended appointee? 
The question really at the end of the day is why are we content to leave these issues to be pronounced on by the courts? Jan Paulson said the courts will take advantage of rules and guidelines in order to take control of the process. And my point simply is it's already happening. Without rules, it is already happening. And what is happening is we're seeing the emergence of a series of episodic rulings which will govern the development of these standards over a period of time, but not in a consistent way, and worse, not coming from within the community. I suggest external regulation is simply not the answer. Nor is pure self-regulation where the initiative is left in the hands of the arbitrator. As I've just noted, the cases that I've referred to concern instances where arbitrators evidently thought they were not conflicted, but tribunals disagreed. This is ultimately bad for arbitration. I think we're all familiar with some of the uh, utterances from the committee in the Vivendi case. Do we fare better if we left the regulation of arbitrators' conduct in the hands of individual tribunals? I think perhaps not. Arbitrators are slow to condemn the conduct of their colleagues, save for egregious breaches, and this is so for a variety of reasons. There is also some statistical support for this view. Out of 25 disqualification proposals submitted to the co-arbitrators of affected tribunals in exit arbitrations, 21 were rejected, while the remaining four were referred to the chairman of the Administrative Council. I think internal regulation may afford a better prospect. And by this I refer again to the role of the arbitral institutes who may be best placed to play, to, to play a role. They have the existing competencies to draft ethical codes of conduct which can be appended to their institutional rules, incorporated by reference into the arbitration agreement the way that the LCIA model proposes to do. Or acceptance of such codes could be mandated as a condition for appointment to an institution's panel. Institutions have the capacity or should have the capacity to set up formal processes to handle complaints of conduct with the attendant disciplinary committees to deal with serious complaints. An accreditation system could conceivably result in accreditation being suspended or revoked if an arbitrator is found to have committed serious or repeated breaches. This uh, is where I'll make up some time. Uh, I cannot find very much to disagree with, uh, okay, if anything, must be. in what I just heard. So I leave it to you, ladies and gentlemen, to, uh, to comment later on uh, the question of uh, the rules that apply to arbitrators. Uh, I want to take it a step further and suggest to you that the next step is one of incre incrementalism and not radical reform. The next step is to apply sanctions to breaches of those rules. That is where I believe we fall short today. We have the rules, we discuss them, uh, they idealize the comportment of arbitrators, but what happens in real cases when the arbitrators fall short? Arbitrants, the users, naturally want to know whether administering institutions have any meaningful way to hold arbitrators accountable. Are they accredited in any way? Are they monitored for compliance with any standards at all? What are the sanctions? Disaccreditation? Forfeiture of fees? 
suspension of eligibility for service within that institution? Who's ever heard of any of these things? But why not? And what's radical about it? If you accept to serve under the rules of institution, you actually sign a compact with that institution. And if you know that that institution has robust sanctioning rules, you don't have to sign up. And by signing up, you accept discipline. Why not? Why has this never been tried? And perhaps this is where the institutions need to go. Less the appetite for court intervention continues unabated. Is there a serious attempt to address the disquiet that might arise from the personal familiarity that might develop among leading arbitrators and advocates, some of whom wear different hats on different occasions, in a manner which is entirely foreign to the more distant relations between advocates and judges? And yet these are the people who decide international disputes presumptively without appeal. How do institutions review arbitrators' fees and costs to ensure that they do not take advantage of their positions vis-a-vis -vis the parties? How finally do the institutions evaluate themselves entirely by inter internal reviews, by peer review, or by some form of audit? Wouldn't the existence of real teeth behind these rules, the prospects of being suspended for five years, from appointment by a particular institution suffice to ensure that that rule need not be applied, hanging there as a sword of Damocles. Now, Alexis Moore has pointed to a danger inherent in the kind of reform which I insist on calling incremental. Um, he says this, to ensure the independence of arbitrators by abolishing, for example, unilateral uh, uh, nominations of arbitrators but this would apply to other things as well. This could create a distance between the arbitral community and the users of arbitration. Arbitrators would look less at the parties and more at the institutions, which all have their own degree of internal politics and their bureaucracy. The risk would exist that arbitrators progressively move from their current culture of service providers close to the needs and requirements of the users to a culture of arbitral public servants or even worse, arbitral politicians. It's a powerful point. Unless caution is exercised, the arbitral process may be suffocated by bureaucratic controls. Regulators, including institutional regulators, may be empowered to license, monitor, evaluate arbitrators in accordance with ever-expanding policy directives that trump party autonomy. Other officials may step in to establish performance standards as they, not the parties, perceive those standards. In the end, we might thus end up with purely bureaucratic innovations, including from public authorities, such as a rule that certain types of contract may be subject to arbitration only by arbitrators appointed by ministerial decree to be selected, by, to be selected for individual cases by lot or simply by rotation. This is very far from arbitration rather a new form of judicial outsourcing masquerading as arbitration and passing on the cost to the litigants while avoiding the burdens of judges' salaries, benefits, and pensions. As often, it is important to proceed with caution lest the cure be worse than the malady. I hope I've whetted your appetite 
for considering the AAA's various protocols for arbitrations in different segments of the arbitral institution. I just mentioned the one with regard to employment arbitration where there was a particular sensitivity to the ignorance of parties which do not, as uh, a matter of ordinary business, engage in arbitral activity and therefore want to know something about arbitrators of whom they would have little chance otherwise of knowing anything. But there are protocols of many types, industry by industry, and what they all have in common is a key element of the development of the process, which is the significant involvement in the elaboration of these protocols by the relevant interest groups. Lengthy discussions that take place over years for these protocols, which become obligatory if parties wish to use the AAA, which will not administer those types of arbitrations unless those protocols are accepted by the parties. Arbitration would be better understood if outside observers were more engaged in assessing and improving the process. Given that their interest is but intermittent and contingent, it behooves the arbitration community to solicit their views and to provide them with information useful to their judgment. To seek to escape their scrutiny would be a serious error. We should, uh, we should, I think, acknowledge that uh, there is a massive step change in the debate at this point. Because where this debate began was actually a call for the setting of universal harmonized standards. Uh, and that was reflected in Sundaresh's opening statement, if I may say, in the call for coordinated responses in order to allow for harmonization. And yet, I think there may be a detectable retreat Uh, because now uh, we're hearing that it should not be universal, but it should rather be institution-based, which would be local and which would be diversified. Uh, That is something that there may be thoughts about from the audience, particularly those who have previously supported, as there have been many, uh, the call for IBA guidelines or or more generalized, harmonized guidelines in this area. Uh, And equally, the other point that may be worth making is that the starting point is to say, well, there are more challenges. And the question that I have is, if there are more challenges, will we reduce the challenges if we regulate more, or will we increase the challenges because we will provide people with more mechanisms and standards and terminology and tests to deploy in order to derail the process? And with those completely neutral observations, would anybody like to contribute? (laughs) Yes. You may have to shout from there. Okay, I was very happy to do that. There's a microphone just coming. Thank you. Uh, Personally, I have a natural bias against too many rules. Um, I think, as you've alluded to, Toby, that too many rules, after a while, encourages people to find ways to get within the rules or to try and bend the rules as far as possible. Uh, I always think of the analogy of a clifftop path you're walking along um, a path and you see a sign that says take care, the path might be a little bit crumbly, then you will tend not to walk too close to the edge. If on the other hand there's a railing on the edge, you will tend to walk right up to the edge, lean against the railing and look over at the rocks underneath just to check it out. Having the rules makes people go much too close to them and much too close to the edge 
And I think we're far better keeping things with slightly vague rules, which will actually reduce the amount of challenge and reduce the tendency to go too close to them. I'd also like to suggest that if, if rules are seen to be the answer, perhaps somebody needs to found an arbitral institution that has lots of very precise rules. And then let's see what the market thinks and see if people want to use that institution as a preference to those that already exist without such rules. Thank, thank you very much. Yes. Let me just touch on the first point. Uh, I actually think that the tremendous uh, pressure that exists uh, for harmonization of practices in international arbitration is why I think uh, a more workable method, methodology to achieve some of the things that I think need to be achieved in the long, long run is actually to begin with the institutions. And I, I don't fundamentally have a problem with what you say, which is that let the institutions uh, develop their rules because I think if they're good ideas, they will be picked up. I think the uh, idea that the LCIA has uh, put out for uh, setting out a minimum code of conduct for, for counsel is a very good idea. Uh, I, I have some things to say about it, which I'll come to in a, in a few moments. And I think uh, when people in the industry see that it's a good idea, it'll be, it's likely to be picked up and other institutions are likely to, to uh, develop responses to that. And I think we've seen that in a number of uh, developments. As you look at the, the history of arbitration, over, the, over the, the, the course of time, as institutions improve their practices, as they develop better practices, these tend to be reflected in developments elsewhere. And this also comments on the point that Toby was making. Uh, it's not that I, I don't think uh, there is a need to deal with um, universal or widespread standards. I just don't think it's uh, something that's going to happen in the very near term because obviously it is an issue on which there are considerable differences of perspectives. 
there are people who hold very strongly to the view that you do need something uh, like this. On the other hand, there are an equal number, if not more, who feel that this is uh, not a good thing for arbitration. I think it will need to evolve. And I think the best way for it to evolve, the most promising way for some of these things to evolve, is through the institutions where at least the community is actually generating the ideas and the responses and over time having it picked up. Two questions. The vague rules as a matter of legal philosophy. Uh, vague rules are extremely attractive to me, but I am very concerned about the way vague rules might be applied differently in different environments. Uh, the application of vague rules works very well in homogenous cultures where the actors are imbued with a sense of common purpose, sense of intelligence, a sense of fairness, and perhaps above all, a sense of a stake in the system, which they do not want to destroy for the case of advantage in an, in an individual case. What the litigants in the courts of Dubai are doing today which I hope is a passing phenomenon, be very concerning to the future of the institution of Dubai if this is not so, uh, would give me great concern of having vague rules which, faced with any particular fact pattern, could be interpreted in one way or, the, or another. As to the question of whose interest we are concerned with when we talk about um, the perceptions of legitimacy, it is obviously that of arbitrants who are involved in arbitration and who are considering whether they can trust the system for their future contractual uh, um, arrangements. Those parties are, we know, heavily influenced by what they're told by their lawyers, who, we're all human, um, might wish to explain. Um, away their failures in an arbitral procedure and, and perhaps blame it on the arbitrator. It's often said, I've wondered why this is so, that when parties lose a court case, they blame the lawyers, but when they lose an arbitration, they, <laughs> they blame the arbitrator. I, I have some theories, but that will be for another occasion. It seems to me that um, that um, must be, it's, it's an important part, because the arbitrants tend to be heavily influenced by their lawyers. We're talking about the arbitrant's perceptions as heavily colored by the advocates. Therefore, it must be the advocates who feel that they're not getting a raw deal. Advocates are extremely inquisitive and extremely suspicious as the case goes along. They want to know what is happening. And if the institutions operate in an opaque fashion uh, and arbitrators uh, behave in a way which is difficult to understand and cannot be measured uh, against objective standards, they feel a sense of disquiet, which will quickly be transmitted uh, to their, uh, to their, uh, to their uh, clients. The one on the issue of uh, my hobby horse, uh, disliking uh, the insistence on unilaterally appointed arbitrators, um, I'm not the slightest convinced by um, uh, uh, opinion polls asking people if they want to appoint their own arbitrators when they have an arbitration. Well, let me talk to that person after, and after he's spoken to me, see what that person thinks at that time. Of course, I would say yes to that question uh, as one asked very quickly without considering the pros and cons. But 
There is one argument, and I think I know them all by now. There's one argument that defeats me every single time. I have nothing to say. And that is when Stephen Bond looks at me and says, well, all all of your thoughts are interesting, but I don't trust the institution, not because I have any moral qualms about them, not because I think they're going to appoint crooks, but I don't trust them to appoint the proper person for my case. I know, he continues, it's nice to sit here and be able to put words in his mouth, uh, I know that appointing one arbitrator uh, doesn't give me absolute assurance of what will happen, but at least I know that there is one person who will do a proper job and will perhaps influence the others, so I will not have the risk of a runaway tribunal. There I have absolutely no answer, and that's the state of institutional reform, and that's why I was so interested in the first of our topics this evening. Let's move to the last third topic, which is counsel, and uh, Yanis to begin. This will be, you may be, I'm sure you'll be happy to hear my shortest intervention. Uh, I want to address something which I conceive of a moral duty of counsel and arbitration. So this is by way of exhortation rather than really the subject of regulation or not. Uh, It seems to me that arbitrators in the challenging field of international arbitration owe it to their clients to consider all of the options that are available in a given arbitration. In national laws, in France, you can be severely punished by the courts if you have an international case and do not adequately inform yourself about the applicable foreign law. You can be disbarred and you can be fined. Now, if an advocate gets along, or gets involved in an international arbitration, isn't there some sort of a similar duty to inform oneself about the available mechanisms and adjustments of the mechanisms which are available in international arbitration? One last plug for the activities of the AAA. If you know, as you should, that the AAA has devised a special protocol for complex international cases, wouldn't you have a duty at least to consult that and to see what solutions people who have been thinking about this for a number of years, who've consulted the relevant community, which for that purposes are are businesses that are internationally active, isn't that something which weighs on your duty of performance as an advocate. That type of attention will solve, would solve a lot of, uh, 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 of the problems which are faced in international arbitration. That happens, I think, also to go for the processes by which arbitral tribunals are selected without the involvement of the institution, where we can all be happy. Uh, how about the parties agree to select only the presiding arbitrator uh, and then trusting him so much ask him or her to come up with a list of wing men or wing women Uh, there are a number of such possibilities that might be explored and you might say it's unlikely to, to yield agreement how do you know until you've tried it there is fear on the part of litigants always from the unknown. And if there are intelligent ways of 
trying to seek agreement, surely that is something that must be endeavored. I think uh, the question of uh, developing codes or guidelines in relation to arbitrator conduct is potentially uh, an area where there is the greatest need, not only for the reasons I've already outlined, but also because there's a complete dearth of applicable standards and, and guidelines. And here, let me again come back to this point about cultural differences that can give rise to acute challenges with two examples, approaches to discovery. Notoriously divergent, you can contrast the wide discovery rules in the U.S. and, and English practice, for example, with the more restrictive continental disclosure regime. Another example is pre-testimonial communications with witnesses and what is proper or not proper in relation to witness preparation. What would be acceptable in some instances would be regarded as flagrant misbehavior in others. Let me also touch briefly on Jan's earlier example of what's happening in Dubai. And it's interesting that this is happening. It is, uh, I suggest, not responsive to any of the issues that we've looked at today because this isn't happening because there are standards. This is happening in the absence of standards, and Jan has said that the courts haven't pronounced on it. But it highlights what parties can do through their counsel to drive a torpedo through an arbitration process. And to my mind, it highlights the need for us to, as a community, step forward and say something about what is acceptable and not acceptable from uh, counsel who appear in arbitrations. When it comes to the regulation of lawyers, the instinctive reaction tends to be to leave it to the national bar associations. But this just doesn't work in the context of arbitration. First of all, the ethical rules enforced by domestic bar associations may not have any application, may not reach foreign counsel who appear within a jurisdiction for the purposes of an international arbitration. Most often, I don't think it would. And second, I think it's doubtful if the Bar Association would particularly be interested to really expend the time and the energy that would be involved in examining cases uh, of, this case, uh, of this nature, international arbitrations, often taking place in another jurisdiction. And it gives rise to the proverbial case of things slipping between the cracks. And certainly any idea of regulation based purely on counsel doing the right thing is illusory because there are no accepted standards and there's simply no incentive for voluntary compliance because all the motivations stem from wider community interests and the need to preserve the legitimacy and strength of the institution of arbitration. So what are we left with? I think, again, I come back to the uh, LCIA model which is to allow arbitrators, in the first instance, apart from the generation of of dialogues and codes and so on and so forth, but to allow arbitrators to regulate counsel in the case before them. But I have some further thoughts to offer and, and perhaps to leave you with. I think the idea of excluding counsel from an arbitration can be very risky business because it impacts quite fundamentally on the party's right to choose uh, its representative. And if this were reserved to the extreme cases, might there be room for a more graduated range of options? Could there be costs orders against a party as a sanction for counsel misconduct? Could there be personal costs orders against recalcitrant counsel? We do that in some courts. Should the tribunal have the right to communicate with the, with the client directly to raise concerns over counsel conduct or incompetence? Should the tribunal have the right, indeed, 
Should there be an expectation that breaches will be reported to bar associations? And might a party whose counsel is found to be in breach of these codes conceivably be made contractually liable for damages? I think this is an area where more needs to be done. Uh, we have about 10 minutes or so to, uh, to explore any other or indeed any controversy in the room on this point. Uh, would anybody like to now contribute? Uh, yes. Yes. There's a microphone just on its way. Well, thank you for uh, coming tonight and uh, for your very interesting speeches. I have just one question. Uh, I know that the the subject of uh, the conference tonight is is self-regulation of our international arbitration illusion. And you propose to talk about three points, institutions, arbitrators, and councils. And I'm studying at the moment arbitration, and I was told that there were institutional arbitration on the one side and ad hoc arbitration on the other side. My question, therefore, why did you choose not to talk about ad hoc arbitrations and do you think that other arbitrations can be regulated? Thank you. I think uh, uh, w one of the things I said uh, at the uh, ICA last year was the, the, the trend increasingly, at least in the context of commercial arbitration, I think the trend increasingly is drifting towards uh, institutional arbitration. And I think increasingly users see a lot of benefits in institutional arbitration from having cases managed and having the benefit of rules and systems in place that give them a measure of predictability over how the arbitration is going to proceed. Uh, the point you raise is a fair one. Uh, and, and all of the solutions that are immediately uh, appearing on the horizon actually relate to institutional arbitration. When it comes to ad hoc arbitration, there isn't a ready solution unless you're talking about much wider consensus that emerges over how to deal with some of these things. And uh, whilst I think those are things that we should strive for, uh, I can't say that I'm optimistic they will happen in the very near future. To put it another way, ad hoc arbitration is indeed regulated, but it is more directly regulated by the courts than institutional arbitration. So we come, we come back to where we started, which is, uh, do we maintain the status quo, uh, or is something to be done? And if something is to be done, what is to be done? Would anybody like to propose the answer before we, uh, before we close the proceedings? Or would you all like a collective moment of reflection? <laughs> uh, I'm, yes. Yes, please. Thank you, Toby. I was interested in the comment by Chief Justice Menon involving the exclusion of counsel. Um, it is a dramatic and dangerous step, and there's only been a handful of cases worldwide. I wonder whether if we're willing to accept, as many jurisdictions do, that in domestically we can exclude counsel in certain extreme cases, why should arbitration be any different? I, I, think, I think for that to uh, uh, emerge as a viable idea, you'd have to head towards a situation where, uh, as, as a norm, you'd have to head towards a situation where there was some sort of uh, bar, arbitration bar, or some sort of qualifying standard that says you've got to be a member of this bar. Because what typically happens in the domestic setting is you strike someone off or you disbar them, you remove their license to practice. 
Um, the furthest that we've gone in the arbitration setting is looking at, at, at excluding counsel in particular cases. Um, there are very, very few instances where this has been done, and I think it's a, it is quite a, a, a radical idea. Uh, I, I think the LCIA model, which introduces it, is a good one. Uh, but I think that it is useful to think of other types of sanctions that can be applied to counsel. I think if counsel knows, for example, that they might, they might be liable to personal cost orders or that um, their clients could uh, look to them for an indemnity if, if they suffer damages or, or were made to bear uh, cost orders because of counsel's conduct. I think that could well uh, operate as a significant break on, on uh, counsel misconduct. So I think the introduction of financial disincentives is a good way to um, have a, a step-down solution because actually removing a party from, from the arbitration may be uh, quite a tall order. But in the long term, I mean, is it possible to dream one day of a situation where, uh, and, and I did actually think of this, uh, of saying this, where, where you might have a situation where there are relatively easy barriers to get into the bar of arbitration, but if you don't behave and you get kicked out, you don't, you're not allowed back in. Maybe one day we'll get there. But I, I don't think that's something that, uh, quite frankly, in the current atmosphere, we would regard as being likely in the, in the near to medium term. I want to, uh, I want to abuse my position, um, <laughs> because this is the only, time, only chance I'm going to get to put a Chief Justice on the spot. <laughs> so I want to ask Sundaresh whether, in the course of the time that's elapsed since your keynote address at ICA in, uh, in 2012, and the debates that have taken place on this, uh, has your thinking changed? Because it seems that the aspirations have become more limited. And where we started in terms of the setting of universal standards and harmonization, we've actually, we've actually gone to quite a different place, which is, which is actually much more restricted. Actually, you're not putting me on the spot because I welcome the question. Uh, yes, my, my thinking has, has developed, but let me explain that uh, very, very specifically by reference to an exchange that I had with Bernard after the QMC debate. Uh, we had a debate in September last year in QMC. Uh, it wasn't exactly a debate because I, I wrote a paper and sent it to Bernard, Toby, um, and, and they, they uh, had the paper for a week, and then uh, I made my speech, and then they, proceed, they split it up into three, uh, and each of them took turns to uh, whack it out of existence. Um, uh, but, 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 the, but I learned a lesson from there because we went into that debate on, uh, with, with very polarized absolutist positions. And the truth of the matter is there are no absolute answers. In fact, this is a very, very difficult issue where you need to get people to come around to a consensus and it's going to take time to come around to consensus. Uh, Jan opened his remarks by saying that it was a different Menon who spoke today from the one who spoke last year. He said it was even avuncular. Um, uh, I, I had a very different objective when I spoke last year because it was the chance of a lifetime to give the keynote address at ICA and to have a thousand arbitration lawyers sitting there and listening to you. Um, I wanted to say whatever I wanted to say. Do I feel passionate about it? Absolutely, I feel passionate about it. Why? Because I practiced arbitration in Asia where, to be perfectly frank, and if you don't mind my being, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but being very, very frank, it's a very different environment. It's a very different environment. That's the point I'm trying to get across, that you shouldn't look at these issues. Most of the thought leadership in arbitration comes from the West. Uh, 
but you shouldn't look at the problems from the perspective of the West because it is a very, very different perspective when you look at the massive growth of arbitration, people coming into it without the ethos and the culture and the understandings and the rules. And believe me, that's a real issue. And in the aftermath of that debate, um, Jan said earlier on that actually let's put one or two things off the table. One of the things he said we put off the table uh, was this idea that are there, are there cynical arbitrators, are there people who, uh, I made a note of it, he said, um, uh, are there people who seek to game the system? And he said, well, let's take it as given that all agree. Actually, that's not fair because at QMC, perhaps because we were polarizing the positions, the position taken, I said that it was absolutely the case that there are people who game the system. Bernard's position was that's absolutely not the case. So the point I was trying, the point I'm trying to make in a in slightly uh, circuitous way, the point I'm trying to make is uh, my thinking has developed simply because I think it's necessary to persuade. And it's not possible to persuade if you take extreme positions because then people push back and uh, it becomes sort of you talk at each other rather than trying to talk to each other and trying to find the ground where you can agree on. And that's why the tone today was very different from even QMC, because I'm trying to persuade. I'm trying to get more people to see that there is a need to do something. So my view is there is absolutely a need to do something. And in, re in response to the question that was made earlier on, why, whose interest am I, am I speaking from, I'm speaking from the interest of the institution, of arbitration, because I think you will find there is a danger, and I don't mean to be alarmist, but I think there is a danger that 10 years from now, when you find the arbitration community tenfold, 20-fold with new entrants who come in without all these understandings, you're going to find serious risks to the legitimacy of arbitration. And at the moment, the entire international commerce uh, framework depends on arbitration for it to work. If people started losing confidence in arbitration, if people started having doubts over the legitimacy of arbitration, I think we're going to have serious problems down the road. So that's uh, why uh, I, 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 I come across as a lot more conciliatory. It's not that I don't think these are important issues. I think they're very important issues. I still think there are real problems out there. They may not be severe in Europe because most of you come from a background that's a lot more homogenous and a a lot more understanding and you have a lot more history. You've had many decades of arbitration to work through the issues and work through the thinking. But believe you me, I've had, I've had cases where I'm involved with an opposite counsel in arbitration before an arbitrator where he's delivering, deliberating on his award. He calls me up to say, will you appoint me in another case where the opposite counsel says he's agreeable if you agree? That's it. I mean, you know, it seems astounding to you, but this happens. And we need to do something about it. And the only way to do something about it is if the community takes the leadership in defining what is and isn't acceptable. Yeah, if you want to have a, the last word. All right. A small point and a big point for me. Uh, the small point is that if the objection to the presence of counsel is that his or her presence will possibly prejudice the substantive rights of the party in an outcome-determinative way, there is no remedy but exclusion. That's a small point. The big point is uh, having, having accused uh, Sundar Rush Menon of having appeared this evening uh, speaking uh, soft reason uh, to us, uh, perhaps there is an explanation other than 
the proposition that we see a different man appearing before <laughs> us. Uh, the answer might be actually that after the cold shower of Singapore, what he said has been repeated so often and talked about so much and thought about so much that it has become instant conventional wisdom. Well, with that disappointing <laughs> moment of consensus, I think this has been a useful exercise in showing the convergence that has actually happened since the famous keynote address. I want to finish by making clear that what happened at QMW uh, by Julian and by Bernard and myself was by way of carefully planned ambush. <laughs> and otherwise, to thank everybody for your participation and to thank our speakers. Thank you very much.